1: I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here is your top five at five. Could a fourth vaccine in the U.S. just be weeks away? AstraZeneca out with new trial results just minutes ago. To technology... ARKS. Kathy Wood has a new price target for Tesla that has everyone on the street buzzing. And in Turkey, the country's central bank and the president ousting its central bank chief, sending markets there into a frenzy, but ready to party like it's 2009, a $25 billion deal in the works that could signal a pretty bullish bet on the U.S. economy. And back to his followers. Maybe he's back. A possible social media comeback by former President Trump is in the works. It's Monday, March 22, 2021, and you are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Good morning. I am Dominic Hsu in for Brian Sullivan so far today, kicking off this morning with stock futures indicating at least a little bit of movement. You can see here the major averages are coming off a a decent sized week here. The S&P is implied lower by roughly five points. The Dow Jones implied higher, roughly lower by 93 and the Nasdaq and higher by 49 to 50 points. Uh, These are True, probably these futures moves hold into the opening bell for regular cash equities trading. Now, the Dow is posting its worst week in two weeks. And along with the S&P 500, they both snapped a two-week winning streak. The Nasdaq ending Friday higher, but still coming off another down week. One bright spot, though. The Dow Transportation Index capping off a seventh, again seventh, winning week in a row. The Dow transports year to date already up about 13 to 14 percent. By the way, it's its longest weekly winning streak since March of 2016. We are continuing to watch the interest rate complex, the yield curve as well. Check this out here: the two-year Treasury note yield currently just a hair above uh, 14 basis points, 0.143 percent, and then the 10-year Treasury note yield. 1.682% the last trade there, the 30-year long bond, about 2.39%. One hot stock to watch remains Tesla. Over the weekend, ARK Invest's Kathy Wood is out with a new price target on the stock, expecting it to hit, get this, the $3,000 per share mark by the year 2025. Now, that means... Wood expects to earn about a 50 percent a year on average between that and 2025, based on Friday's closing price of $655 per share. A $3,000 share price would also give Tesla a roughly $3.6 trillion market cap. Tesla shares right now up about one and three quarters percent in the pre-market trade 666 and change. That's the price level in the pre-market trade right now. Around the world, a mixed picture overnight in Asia. Japan's Nikkei falling some 2%, as you can see there, with the Shanghai composite up about 1%. Let's spin that globe around to what's happening with Europe right now, because we are seeing trading just getting underway over there. The German DAX just about flat on the day, with the FTSE 100 in the UK down one quarter of 1%, and the CAC in France down about one half of 1%. Well, breaking news this morning results from the long-awaited U.S. trial of the Oxford University AstraZeneca COVID vaccine are out and confirm that the shot is both very safe and highly effective here at home in the United States. Juliana Tattlebaum joins us now from London with the results there. And Juliana, these results have been so highly anticipated. Can you delve into the details for us? What do we now know about that AstraZeneca vaccine?
2: dumb. This is huge data for AstraZeneca. What this data has shown, this is a large-scale phase three trial, which included the U.S. and some Latin American countries, and the trial data shows 79% vaccine efficacy at preventing symptomatic COVID-19. And critically, it showed 100% efficacy against severe or critical disease and hospitalization. So this data from AstraZeneca is very positive, positive data. Comparable efficacy across ethnicity and age also was shown with 80% efficacy in participants aged 65 and older. 20% of the trial participants were 65 years and older, and 80% of the trial participants had comorbidities. In terms of safety, the trial data showed that the vaccine was well-tolerated with no safety concerns related to the vaccine. Now, AstraZeneca was in sharp focus last week over some concerns raised in the EU around a potential link between the vaccine and blood clots. And today's data show that an independent data safety monitoring board found no increased risk of thrombosis. So a very positive set of phase three interim data. And AstraZeneca said today that they will continue to analyze the data and prepare for the primary analysis to be submitted to the FDA within the coming weeks for emergency use authorization. And as you can see here, AstraZeneca shares are trading higher on the back of this data. Dom.
1: So, so, Juliana, can, can, you, can you help us understand something here? Why is the efficacy rate for the U.S. trial numbers so much higher than what we saw in the U.K. originally? What exactly was driving that big gap in, in, in the results?
2: So this data that we're seeing out of the U.S. showing 79% efficacy, this is gold standard data. This is a controlled study. And the original data that we got from AstraZeneca was a little bit mixed. It took from trials in various parts of the world. And this data here now that we're seeing out of the U.S., this was a major trial, over 21,000 participants in the U.S. and over 30,000 overall, including those Latin American trials. And you mentioned some of the lower efficacy numbers that we've seen from AstraZeneca, perhaps the... The one gaining the most attention from a concerning perspective was the South Africa data that we got. Some preliminary evidence showing that the vaccine was uh, not effective in preventing mild to moderate cases of COVID in South Africa. Now, it's important to remember that it's not just the AstraZeneca vaccine that's shown reduced efficacy in protecting against uh, the South Africa variant. We've also got preliminary evidence from other vaccines showing reduced efficacy. So the strains that are circulating in the U.S. uh, are, are clearly the ones that you can protect against with the AstraZeneca vaccine. So 79 percent is the number to watch, and it's really positive data.
1: Juliana, there's a public relations campaign that needs to be waged by AstraZeneca and Oxford about this. We have new polls. Over the weekend, showing that Europeans are still a bit sour over the vaccine, despite regulators' repeated approval. U.K. Prime Minister Boris Johnson took the shot. What exactly does AstraZeneca have to do to get over this public relations issue that Mm. they have with regard to the possibility that there were blood clots maybe in, in, in some of their drug trials and everything else? What does AstraZeneca need to do?
2: This is a huge issue for the AstraZeneca vaccine. Public perception and a lot of the concern that we're seeing among a European, the European population has actually come from European politicians themselves. They have put AstraZeneca in the spotlight, raising some concerns around the vaccine. And just today, a YouGov poll was released showing that more than half of the people polled in the major economies in the EU are skeptical of the vaccine. They believe it is unsafe. Last week, we saw more than a dozen EU countries unilaterally suspend use of the AstraZeneca vaccine over some concerns around blood clots and the potential link between blood clots and the AstraZeneca vaccine. But as you pointed out, the European Medicines Agency on Thursday once again reiterated the vaccine is safe and effective. And in terms of a turning point, this data could be it. Don?
1: All right, Juliana Tatelbaum with the latest there on the AstraZeneca COVID vaccine. Thank you very much. To a developing story now in Turkey, where the country's president, Tayyip Erdogan, has unexpectedly ousted his central bank governor over the weekend, sending equity markets and currency markets there into a frenzy. Our own Hadley Gamble joins us now from Abu Dhabi with the latest there. Good morning. Good afternoon, Hadley.
3: Hey, Good morning. Good afternoon, Dom. You know, at the end of the day, this turmoil at the Turkish Central Bank essentially creating a bit of a bloodbath in the market. Just to run you through some of the numbers that we're seeing so far, the Turkish 10-year yield hitting above at 1.18 percent. We saw the MSCI Turkish ETF um, on track for its worst day ever. And the Istanbul Stock Exchange halted trade pretty early on after um, they dropped about 6 percent before resuming trade a little while after that. If you take a look right now at the Turkish lira, it's at 7.97 That is stabilizing, frankly, from the lows that we saw earlier today, off by as much as 15 percent at one point. But at the same point, this is still 10 percent off of what we saw on Friday. That, of course, all before President Richie Erdogan decided to sack his third central bank governor, in the last five years, and bring in a party loyalist. Now, remember, uh, President Erdogan has never made any secret of his views on rate policy. In ergonomics terms, as they say, he believes that when it comes to inflation, you need lower rates to keep a lid on things, to keep things from overheating. Now, of course, economists have been pushing back on that. And we've, of course, heard from various analysts as well as banks throughout the morning. Sokgen coming out with an analysis here, analysis here saying that the sacking of Nachi Akbal. The central bank governor over the weekend leaves Turkey, quote, beyond the point of no return. And they're predicting that we could see the lira hiking to nine point seven to the U.S. dollar by June. And of course, they've recommended an exit of all long term Turkish assets. So a bit of a conundrum for the Turkish people, frankly, ahead of elections uh, in the coming months.
1: All right. Uh, Thank you very much, Hadley Gamble, the latest there on Turkey's central bank situation. Back to the overall markets as investors gear up for the final few days of the trading in the first quarter. Despite waves of volatility, all three indexes are looking at solid gains so far this year, up between two and a half and six and a half percent at this point. So what's more in store for this quarter ahead? Now, I'm joined by Mark Anderson, the co-head of Global Asset Allocation at UBS Global Wealth Management. He's also the chief investment office there. Uh, I mean, Mark, if you take a look at the overall picture for markets right now, we've talked about the volatility, but this is nowhere near as volatile as it could have been. How exactly can markets stay constructive in the coming weeks?
4: I think you're absolutely right. I think we're both looking into obviously uh, a number of vaccine news that's going to come in more positive. By the end of the second quarter, we're going to have, in our estimate, 70% of the US population with uh, first dose of the vaccine in in Europe around 40%. And that ultimately means that we think that the second quarter is going to be absolutely transformational in terms of growth, some growth rates that I expect to be some of the strongest of, of my career. And I think that leads strongly into equity markets. And even if Jay Powell and the rest of the the Fed told us mid last week that uh, that they're going to run let inflation run a little bit longer. They're also giving the equity markets the goody of keeping short term rates uh, close to zero for an extended period of time. Earnings estimates continue to be revised higher in places like the U.S. and this is all of the uh, in in its in its entirety uh, a strong backdrop for, for global equity markets and in particular some of the deflationary trades. So.
1: I look at the reflationary trades. I look at the S&P 500. I look at some of the value oriented sectors in the U.S. markets, and it's translating to other parts around the world as well. I I guess my, my question, Mark, is how much of the optimism about the rebound has already been priced into the market right now? Ever since the vaccine headlines came out in November, late October, early November, the markets have been off to the races. Isn't it all factored in right now or is there
4: still more to go? We think there's more to go. So we think when we look at it across in different sectors, it's energy and financials, small caps as well. So if we look at something like like small cap, as an example, it's trading at a two standard deviation, cheap to the rest of the market. When we look at value, it has certainly caught up and it's basically where it was a year ago, but a significant underperformance over the last decade to to the growth names on the back of of falling uh, yields, essentially. And if we look at something again, more concretely like financials, it's trading at a, also a two standard deviation, cheap to the broader US and and European market. It's supported by not only higher yields, it's a bit of an insulation against high inflation rates, but is also uh, supported by falling non-performing loans. We're seeing earnings provisions being going significantly upwards on the back of falling provisions. So all of which are factors which we think are both an interesting investment case in itself but also for a portfolio context, for a lot of our wealth management clients, something that insulates from what we think is at the moment not a risk that's related to growth in the markets but rather to an overshoot in inflation.
1: Let's talk about, Mark, those those uh, wealth management clients that you have, uh, fairly affluent and whatnot. If you look at the way interest rates have developed over the course of the past two to three months, has it changed at all the view of your clients about where they should be allocating capital? Has the pullback in the bond market Made an attractive entry point for certain parts in credit, perhaps corporate credit on high yield or investment grade. Are people still looking at the equity markets for most of those returns? Uh, What about the hunt for yield? the, The interest rate picture has changed so many parts of the market trade so far this year.
4: That's absolutely right. We've been recommending our clients for longer to be out of cash, high grade and also investment grade bonds where we don't have that kind of insulation from the move up in yields and where there's a high sensitivity to rising inflation rates. If we look at the U.S. high-yield markets, we have credit spreads of around 3.5%, and we see that overall the insensitivity to these rising yields and inflation expectation is relatively low because the strong growth, inflation, higher energy prices basically lean into a strong fundamental backdrop for in particular something like U.S. high-yield or also Asian high-yield, which is something that our clients have been zooming in on, in on for a while, where you t- today get yield levels of close to 7% in U.S. dollars. So it is a fundamentally different backdrop for many of our investors who have both shifted towards the inflationary trades, but also within the fixed income segment, looking for both things like U.S. high yield or senior loans, where you get a uh, significant, more attractive uh, yields and investment uh, composition than you do in your higher rated bonds.
1: All right. Mark Anderson at UBS, thank you very much for your thoughts. We appreciate it, sir. When we come back on the show, much more on that breaking news out of AstraZeneca and what U.S. approval could mean for the fight against the pandemic here at home. Plus, a spring break city in crisis. The developing situation in Miami Beach in Florida coming up next. And later on, forget Twitter. Now, former President Donald Trump is reportedly planning a return to social media on his own terms. Very busy hours still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns after this break. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. A check on the markets right now. The futures indicating the S&P lower by roughly 8 points at the opening bell. The Dow, by, Dow down by 115. And the NASDAQ showing some slight gains up by about 50 points. As for the laggards in the Dow and so far in the pre-market trade, check out J.P. Morgan Chase, Boeing, Cisco Systems, Coca-Cola, and Salesforce.com. Salesforce the only up one of those laggards. Well, back to this morning's breaking news, AstraZeneca is releasing the results of its long-awaited major U.S. trial. The company, along with Oxford University, reporting the vaccine is 79% effective in preventing the disease and 100% effective at preventing severe cases and death out of more than 30,000 volunteers who were part of that study. This says New York is reporting its first case of the Brazilian COVID variant in a person with no recent travel history. Joining me now is EHE Health CEO, Dr. David Levy here. Dr. Levy, if you take a look at the way that these variants are kind of starting to spread Is there a reason why people should not be as optimistic about getting the vaccine? It appears as though the vaccine trajectory is doing really well in the United States.
6: Well, thanks very much for having me on. Well, the idea here is that... um, The faster we move to immunizations, the more we can prevent more multiplication of variants. It's really as simple as that. And so this should not deter, variants should not deter anybody under any condition from moving towards any vaccine that they can get at any time whenever they become available.
1: So the AstraZeneca news this morning, how much of it is a game changer if there can be an emergency use authorization granted giving us then effectively four vaccines against COVID going into the summer months?
6: Well, I I think for the world, it's a game changer. Here in the U.S., we've had uh, great uh, supply procurement and uh, we were anticipating that uh, demand demand uh, supply would be meeting demand sometimes by the mid end of April and or early May. So I wouldn't call it a game changer in the U.S. because we have had supply. But I believe it will be a game changer for the rest of the world. No question about it.
1: So so let's talk about these variants. We, we talk about the variants and in, in, they're in Brazil, they're in South Africa, they're in the U.K. How much does having a vaccine program with AstraZeneca attached to it help to minimize the damage from possible variants coming out of other? parts of the world
6: well the more people that get vaccine uh the fewer replications of vaccine will occur and therefore the smaller the opportunity that these variants can start to occupy the niches that have become uh available as we have more and more vaccination so the idea is the more you vaccinate the lower the replication and the lower the chance that these other variants can come to stop can become uh, uh, uh uh, completely available to uh, to prevent uh, to occupy the spaces that the other variants that, that the original uh, virus didn't So we're really looking towards more and more vaccination is going to reduce the chance of variants overcoming the rest of uh, the current um, uh, species that are out there.
1: And, And Dr. Levy, before before we let you go, if you take a look at the way that these vaccines are being deployed right now, what's the critical next step in terms of outside the U.S. for vaccine deployment and distribution?
6: Well, it's just why it's why I think there's a whole host of regulatory issues out there in the rest of the world that are preventing uh, the smooth distribution. Getting this vaccine out to as many countries as possible, moving it quickly through the supply chain uh, on the ground, getting people into people's arms. That's what's going to be the most important situation uh, as we're looking forward to the next three months.
1: All right, Dr. Levy, thank you very much for your thoughts. We appreciate it and good luck with your campaign as well. Thank you. Still on deck for the show, watch out Tesla. Jeep is unveiling a new off-road all-electric concept truck with an X-Men-inspired twist. Those details coming up next.
0: Today's big number, 31.4%. That's how much the price of a gallon of gas has jumped from a year ago, according to AAA. The national average for a gallon is now $2.89. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do.
1: Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Let's get a check on this morning's other top headlines. NBC's Francis Rivera is in New York with the latest. Good Monday morning, Francis.
7: Hey, Dom, good morning too. Yeah, we start with a record number of migrants arriving at the nation's southern border that's growing by the day. Yesterday, the Biden administration sent a strong message to migrants saying, we are closed. And the president himself said he may go to the border soon. Republicans have criticized the administration for its response to the situation. In Australia, thousands of people have been forced to evacuate as record rain continues to inundate the country's east coast. On Friday, a woman captured this house floating down a river. Local media reports the home had been rented by a couple who were due to be married this weekend. A spring break like no other. That is how one Miami city official described crowds of spring breakers who descended on the city that's under curfew until next month. City officials declared a state of emergency on Saturday and that on Sunday voted to keep in place that curfew from 8 p.m. to 6 a.m which shutters indoor and outdoor dining during those hours. It comes after authorities grappled with large crowds, some of which caused fights and stampedes. Some high school students across New York City will be able to return to their classrooms today for in-person learning. Middle school students returned last month, and elementary schools reopened in December. For Monday morning, Dom, those are your headlines.
1: All right, Francis Rivera, thank you very much for those. Have a nice day. Mm -hmm. You too. Straight ahead on the show, much more on your trading day ahead, including that breaking news out of AstraZeneca, plus President Biden's next policy moves and some new regulations out of Washington, D.C. that could target big technology. And if you have not already done so, subscribe to our podcast. If you miss Worldwide Exchange each morning, check us out on Apple, Spotify or other podcast apps. Worldwide Exchange in audio format. We'll be right back. Stocks looking to bounce back after a losing week as the major indices fight to retest recent record highs. The Biden administration beginning to push for that new infrastructure bill with tax hikes for corporations and high earners potentially being part of that plan. And Kathy Woods, ARK Invest once again hiking her firm's price target for Tesla. The staggering price target it's putting on the automaker shares coming up It's Monday, March 22nd, 2021, and you are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Welcome back to the show. I am Dominic Shewin for Brian Sullivan this morning, and here is how stock futures are looking halfway through the 5 a.m. Eastern Time hour. You can see futures right now indicating that the Dow will open down by roughly 100 points, down about 94 points at this stage. The S&P lower by just about five points, and the Nasdaq higher by roughly 65, so a bit of outperformance in that NASDAQ trade so far in the pre-market. On the Treasury side of things, interest rates still a big focus. They've been arguably driving a lot of the volatility in other parts of the market right now. Ten-year benchmark Treasury note yields about 1.68% the last trade there. Two-year note yields just about 14 basis points or 0.14%. And the 30-year long Treasury bond just about 2.39% on that trade there. To this morning's breaking news involving the AstraZeneca and Oxford University COVID-19 vaccine, the drug maker publishing the first data from its major U.S. trial showing the treatment was 79 percent effective in preventing the disease. The vaccine was also shown to be 100 percent effective at preventing severe cases of covid death and hospitalization out of more than 30,000 volunteers in that study. The findings come on the heels of recent questions over the true efficacy of that vaccine, especially in Europe, and could help with its approval here in the U.S. for emergency use authorization. Now to this morning's other top stories. The head of the House Judiciary's antitrust panel is reportedly preparing a series of bills targeting big technology companies. According to Reuters, Democrat chair David Cicilline is aiming to roll out more 10 or more bills on that matter. The report says the strategy to take on the industry leaders with a series of smaller bills instead of one larger piece of legislation is a bid to lower opposition from the tech companies and their lobbyists. Former President Trump is reportedly preparing his return to social media via his own platform. Senior Trump advisor Jason Miller telling Fox News over the weekend the former president plans to launch the platform in two to three months, saying it would, quote-unquote, completely redefine the game. Trump was suspended from Twitter, Facebook, and other social media sites for his role in the attack on the Capitol Hill building in January. And Amazon workers in Italy are expected to kick off a 24-hour strike starting today. The move comes after talks between the company and unions over contracts for workers at Amazon's delivery service suppliers broke down. The unions are seeking changes to contracts on matters including workloads, lunch vouchers and bonuses as well. Amazon shares relatively unchanged $3,080 per share in the pre-market. Well, to Washington, D.C., as the Biden administration continues its march toward a massive infrastructure bill. And while there's plenty of talk about potential tax hikes to pay for that legislation, there's also a push for tax breaks to be part of that package as well. Elon Moy joins us now with more on that story. Good morning, Elon.
5: Well, good morning, Don. President Biden has proposed raising the corporate tax rate to pay for infrastructure, but there could still be plenty of Goodies for individual industries and whatever big piece of legislation comes next on Capitol Hill. And the lobbying has already begun. Take the semiconductor industry. It's got bipartisan support for the CHIPS Act, which creates a 40 percent refundable tax credit for domestic investment in equipment or other expenditures. Democratic Democratic Senator Mark Warner and Republican John Cornyn are the original co-sponsors. Five other Democrats and seven GOP senators have now signed on as well. Meanwhile, the National Venture Capital Association is touting bipartisan support for the American Innovation and Jobs Act. That extends the R&D tax credit to more small businesses and to startups. It also doubles the size of the credit and allows companies to keep full and immediate deductions of R&D costs. Right now, that will expire next year. The push to keep that benefit is being led by the R&D coalition, which includes giants like Amazon, Intel, Ford and Raytheon. Now, I know what you're thinking. That's all fine. But what about, say, musicians? Don't they deserve a tax break, too? And the answer apparently is yes. They have the HITS Act or the Helping Independent Tracks Succeed Act. It allows indie artists to expense the cost of producing their records in the United States. They can write off up to one hundred and fifty thousand dollars in their taxes. So bottom line here, Dom, a twenty one percent rate may go bye buy, buy. But no one needs to cry me a river. Back I see
1: you. what you did there, Elon, and it's so <laughs> poetic and musical in my mind. I'm going to have those songs stuck in my head for the rest of the day. Thank you for that. So, so, so let, me, let me just ask this. How likely is it that these tax breaks actually get passed?
5: Yeah. So that's the interesting thing about how this all works in Washington, Dom, that there is bipartisan support for each of the different measures that I just talked about. And even if an infrastructure bill or even if a tax hike bill ends up being passed with only Democratic votes, The fact that these tax breaks could still get in there, the fact that there's bipartisan support for them means that once they're into the bill and once they're into law, they could be extended for a long time because both Republicans and Democrats support them. I think about a tax break that was included for the beer and alcohol industry back in the 2017 Trump tax cuts. Democrats didn't like that bill at all. But when it came time to extend the tax breaks for that particular industry— bipartisan support for that. It was made permanent. That's the playbook that these industries are trying to follow.
1: All right. A playbook indeed. Elon Moy, thank you very much for that update there. We appreciate it. Thanks for the songs, too, by the way. <laughs> well, for more on President Biden's next policy move and possible impact on your money, joining me now is Aberdeen Standard Investments senior political economist Stephanie Kelly. Stephanie, good morning to you. You just heard Elon's report there. There are a lot of irons in the fire right now, hypothetically, for the Biden administration. What exactly will the priorities be for the current administration going for the next few months?
8: So I think it's pretty clear that green infrastructure just is front and centre. There's a lot of discussion within the party about how you fund it, and that's going to be crucial for for representatives like particularly Joe Manchin. We always talk about him on this show. His role as this kind of centrist who's very keen that they don't do another huge fiscal bill that's not unfunded. So I think that's where the debate is going to be in the party, is how much of it do you fund and how do you fund it? But I think that the point that you've just, has just come across there is that There's a tendency for investors to see bills as kind of good or bad when the reality is if you've got a big infrastructure bill that has lots of positives in it, that's partially offset by taxes, it does become a who are the winners and who are the losers conversation rather than necessarily a kind of outright, well, increases in taxes are bad for business in general. I think it's much more nuanced than that, particularly if you care about long-term potential growth, which we know lots of investors do.
1: Stephanie, the, the one word that I hear all the time when we talk about elections and then inaugurations is infrastructure. I've heard it for decades now at this point. How likely is it that an infrastructure deal actually gets done? They always talk about it being bipartisan, yet it never, ever seems to get any kind of traction.
8: So I think it's really likely that an infrastructure bill gets done, a green infrastructure bill specifically. It's very clear that it's the green element of this that's really supercharging support in the Democratic Party. But as you said, will it be bipartisan? I struggle to see a lot of Republicans getting on board with a bill that requires uh, tax hikes as a, as a part of a funding package, which I think is likely, right? To get the Joe Mansions on board, you need tax hikes. And then if you have tax hikes, Republicans are less likely to get on board. So I think what we learn from the COVID nineteen support bill that's been passed already is that the Biden administration recognises that this is its chance to get things done because come twenty twenty two and those midterm elections, they'll probably lose the house and then they can't do anything. And I think that's really how what's driving support and what's driving the approach. So I'm kind of factoring in that this is likely to happen. The bigger question is just how big is the bill and how is it funded?
1: We've talked about this notion of of, of investors looking towards infrastructure plays. It it happens every time there's an election cycle. People look at construction aggregates. They look at steel manufacturers. We did it in the beginning stages of Trump's presidency. We are doing it right now for Biden's presidency. We've done it in the past for Obama's as well. What exactly then can you expect to see from a corporate standpoint as to the companies that really stand to benefit if we do see some kind of an infrastructure push?
8: So I think what's really interesting with this bill versus previous is around, as I said, the kind of green element of it, because it slightly opens up opportunities, particularly for those materials providers who are important not only to kind of traditional infrastructural work, but also that kind of green infrastructure packaging and and, and building renewable energy, you know, manufacturing and things like that. You know, we know that they want to weatherize lots of buildings. So in some ways, it's, it's quite traditional. But I think it's the green element that opens up a lot of opportunities, which is quite consistent with what investors are increasingly asking for, which is opportunities to contribute to the just transition to, you know, tackling climate change. This might provide both of those things.
1: And, and, and before we let you go, tax policy is going to be a, a huge focus for many investors in the coming months as we talk about this notion that we have to pay for a lot of these initiatives. If there is a tax hike and if it happens for some of the wealthier Americans and corporations out there, how likely is it it will have a significant impact on the U.S. economy?
8: So I think this is where it's really important to bear in mind that a tax hike would be used to fund quite a significant stimulus, especially for long-term potential growth. This is what I was talking about earlier, but there's nuance here. I think the reality as well is that different companies pay different effective corporate tax rates, right? So that's really important as well. So just because the rate says 28% doesn't mean that every single company ends up paying 28%. And again, I think that's where the differentiation will come in. We know as things stand that there are companies paying much, much less than the existing rate. And I think that will continue to be the case. The question is just how much does the change impact the bottom line? And that's where you need to get into things like not just what is the company doing? What can it do in terms of its tax rates, but also what's it profit, its profit margin? And will it benefit from the opportunities that get pushed through by this big infrastructure bill?
1: All right. Stephanie Kelly, Aberdeen Standard, thank you very much. Always great to get your thoughts. Have a nice day. Coming up on the show, your morning's big moves, including a $25 billion railroad mega merger set to revamp the North American Rail Network. But first, as we head out to break some of your other top stories this morning, Epic Games is reportedly set to wrap another round of funding that could push its valuation to around 28 billion dollars this is according to sky news the company behind fortnite is finalizing the terms of the one billion dollar fundraising round with sources saying bank of america merrill lynch is advising on that transaction Saudi Aramco reporting its profit fell 44% from a year ago in 2020 as COVID-related headwinds hammered the global economy and oil demand as well. Despite those struggles, the oil giant announcing it will keep its $75 billion worth of dividend payouts. And Jeep has unveiled a new all-electric version of its Wrangler SUV. But customers will have to wait at least a few years to buy the Wrangler Magneto, which is only a concept vehicle at this point. There's the hat tip to the X-Men. Worldwide Exchange is back in just a moment. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Let's get a check on some of the big stock moves so far this morning. Kathy Wood sees Tesla shares hitting $3,000 each over the next few years. Her firm, ARK Invest, putting out that target price, projecting the stock to more than quadruple by the year 2025. That implies a gain of more than 358% in the next four years based on Tesla's closing price of just under $655 on Friday. The biggest reason for the price target hike is ARK estimates Tesla has a 50% chance of delivering fully autonomous driving by then, though shares up 3% in the pre-market trade. Blackstone making a $6 billion takeover offer for Australia's Crown Resorts, or roughly $9 a share. That's a 20% premium to Crown's closing price on Friday. Blackstone's bid comes as Australian regulators investigate the casino operators' business practices and threaten to revoke its gaming licenses, though shares up 21% in the pre market trade. And Canadian Pacific striking a deal to buy rival Kansas City Southern for $25 billion in cash and stock. It values Kansas City Southern at $275 a share. That is a 23% premium to Friday's closing price. The deal would create the first rail freight network connecting Canada the U.S. and Mexico. Those shares you can see, Kansas City Southern, up 15%. And do not miss Canadian Pacific CEO in an interview live on Squawk on the Street, 9 a.m. Eastern Time with Keith Creole, a must-watch interview there. Well, on deck for the show, John Augustine and Courtney Gibson lay out the moves to make in the trading day ahead, plus the latest on the breaking news on the AstraZeneca vaccine and what it could mean for approval in the United States. And if you haven't already done so, subscribe to our podcast. If you miss Worldwide Exchange, check us out on Apple or Spotify or your podcast app and platform of choice. And March is Women's History Month, and we are spotlighting some of our CNBC reporters. Here is Darla Mercado on what empowers her.
5: What empowers me is my three-year-old son. He pushes me to be the best version of myself in all capacities. This is still the greatest challenge though. Often I'm wearing my mom hat and my journalist hat at the same time. And to that effect, last spring I toilet trained him and still managed to crank out plenty of tax planning stories for our website. I take a lot of pride in my work and I try to be a strong positive
1: example for my son. Welcome back. Turning back to that breaking news involving the AstraZeneca and Oxford University COVID-19 vaccine candidate. You can see their AstraZeneca shares up about one and a half percent in European trading. The drugmaker publishing the first data from its major U.S. trial showing the treatment was 79 percent effective at preventing the disease. The vaccine was also shown to be 100 percent effective at preventing severe cases of covid Death and hospitalization. The findings come on the heels of recent questions over the true efficacy of that vaccine, especially in Europe, and could help with its approval here for emergency youth authorization here in the United States. Well, let's turn back to the markets overall and look at some of the stocks and sectors you should keep an eye on. First of all, check out what's happening with the Invesco S&P 500 equal weight ETF. The ticker is RSP. What you need to know about that ETF is it treats every stock on a more equal basis within the S&P, not market cap weighted like the traditional S&P 500 is. These two ETFs over the course of the last, say, year have traded fairly well in tandem up until about the fall. When the value-oriented parts of the market, smaller members of the S&P, started to outperform, that white line is now higher over the last year than the regular S&P 500. It indicates perhaps a broadening out of the rally that we've seen, including some smaller stocks, not just those mega cap technology and media names. Also check out what's happening with another part of the market. Look at the Spider S&P Oil and Gas Exploration ETF, the ticker XOP, versus the Semiconductors Van Eck Vectors Semiconductors ETF, ticker SMH. Would you believe it if I told you? And I'm putting the chart up there so you can see it. Oil and gas stocks have been a better investment over the last year, even with the COVID market included, than semiconductor stocks. That's a big deal. Remember, those semiconductor stocks were, for many people, a leading indicator for the rally. And now that gap there has gotten pretty big. Oil and gas companies outperforming semiconductor stocks overall. Well, for more on this and your trading week ahead, let's bring in John Augustine, chief investment officer at Huntington Private Bank. Also, Courtney Gibson, president at Loop Capital and a CNBC contributor. Thank you very much both for being here. Courtney, ladies first, we will start with you. How is it that we could have oil and gas stocks outperforming the biggest technology semiconductor names out there? Is this a trend in value-oriented stocks that can be sustainable over the longer term?
9: So, Dom, I'm going to give you a short answer and say no. Um, It's not going to sustain over the long term. However... We are in a situation where we are seeing that rotation into value. Value has underperformed, as we all know, over the past decade. And we've seen, at least at Loop Capital Markets with our institutional investors in particular since the end of last year, a tremendous rotation into these value-oriented stocks. So it's a situation where I think we're seeing that pickup. And we're seeing those names begin to finally add value in folks' portfolios, which is a good thing. But be careful because you don't want to be out of these growth stocks because this run is not over.
1: The run is not over, John. That's what Courtney is saying. Is that kind of jive with what you're thinking right now? Do we have legs for this rally? Can it continue? Should people stay invested?
10: Yeah, well, of course. They should stay invested, especially in an interest rate environment of a 1.7% treasury. Now, what we're seeing from our equity team, though, just like Courtney's saying, our our equity team did a package of value stocks. They brought into portfolios in February, but they're still keeping – they're not getting rid of their technology, their health care stocks, et cetera, and the gr- different growth areas of the economy – or those FANG plus M's, they're just trimming and incrementally adding. We think that's a prudent thing to do. Courtney got that right.
1: So, so John, if I could follow up on that then. You, you mentioned that you've been adding certain types of stocks there. What exactly are the characteristics you are looking for for some of these more value-oriented stocks? And, and, and what exactly are you putting in client portfolios?
10: Well, think of it this way. So material sector, so our team added Dow Chemical, they added Freeport McMurrin, four different base metals, excuse me, and base chemicals, I guess you should say. Then also they added Caterpillar and Deer because of the spending we're seeing not only in the infrastructure sector, but in the farming sector right now, or anticipated spend that we're seeing. Then they added a Chipotle restaurant and a Hilton Hotel for people coming back out in the economy. So those are six of kind of broader package that they added into those portfolios last month. They did a good job.
1: So, so Courtney, with that in mind, if we do think that there's going to be a general trend towards having some of these value oriented stocks be part of portfolios, what exactly would you be looking for in terms of characteristics and factors? and, And what are you putting into client portfolios right now?
9: Well, Dom, I think for us, right, at Moot Capital Markets, we're an investment bank and broker-dealer. So we're watching the flows of some of the largest asset managers on the planet. And those managers, if they have the ability to have a balanced portfolio, the value names in which they're in right now are names that you have a bent towards either technology or a resilience in a rising interest rate environment. And they're positioning those portfolios, Dom, and I want to be clear, not for right now, because I do believe this is a slight blip. When we see 2022 coming in and the Fed has kind of indicated this to us, inflation is going to peel back a little bit, right? We have a base versus last year, which was horrific. And so when we think about a rising rate environment kind of post-2023, some of these names should perform well, and these value names should outperform, whether you're talking about some of the financial names or, yes, whether you're talking about possibly some of the um, industrials that we're seeing out there. So I think we're we're seeing kind of that rotation picking up now or, or had picked up, obviously, before this massive run, and they were positioning the portfolio for this time right now. We're actually seeing clients going back to some of those growth names that have been hit way more than they should have, but have a potential for growth as we move forward. Um, so whether it's a Square, whether it's a PayPal that we're thinking about here, um, or even Facebook, candidly, you've seen names that honestly have a business case for success, not in the short term as, we, as we're seeing some traders trading in and out, but for long-term investment prospects. And you don't want to miss it.
1: Sure. So, so, So just a few moments left here, John, we'll give the last word to you here. Do sure. rising interest rates give you fear just about 15, 20 seconds?
10: Yeah. Coming into the pandemic, we saw a 10-year treasury yield in the one5 to 2% range. If it goes above 2%, it's probably going to take a run at it. If it goes above it, yeah, that's going to spook the stock market because now we're in territory we were not in prior to the great
1: pandemic. So that's something our fixed income team is watching at Huntington. All right. John Augustine and Courtney Gibson, thank you both very much for your thoughts. We appreciate it. That does it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. Squawkbox picks up the market coverage coming up next. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC.
0: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do.